This is the Verbatim Word podcast where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. To be honest, I'm not on social media too much. More or less, I post once a week to let Verbatim Word listeners know that there's a new podcast out. But one thing I do do if I'm on on it, and if I have a few extra moments, is to check out what my nieces and nephews are up to. By taking a look at the posts my siblings have been making about their kids, it's a great way for me to keep up with what the family's up to. Like recently, I saw my nephew Kingston had drawn a comic strip that got published in the school newspaper. And it reminded me of his dad doing the same thing about the same age, drawing characters and dialogue to tell stories. Like father, like son. Or my niece Teek, she's two now and a super fun age and I can't get enough when my sister posts videos of her dancing or trying to dance and keep up with her big sister Ivy, imitating or at least trying the dance aesthetics this two-year-old toddler has observed in my sister who just happens to own her own dance school. Like mother, like daughter. The saying goes, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And kids definitely imitate their parents, the good, the bad, and unfortunately, the ugly. As a teacher, my colleagues and I have commented at least a time or two, gee, I wonder where that kid picked that up. And we can usually figure it out after parent-teacher conferences or after spending any length of time with a mom or a dad. Well, Paul today in chapter five begins by saying, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. As God's kids, we are to imitate him, becoming more like him the longer we live with him in our lives. Walking and talking and responding and even thinking more like him as we mature in our spiritual journey. Imitators of God as dear children. Last time on the podcast, we looked at Paul going into more detail about putting off and putting on, removing the old, sinful, godless behaviors that are characteristic of life before salvation and replacing them with more godly ways of living putting off lying and putting on truth, putting off stealing but putting on productivity, putting off corrupt speech and replacing it with edifying encouragement, because now we are sealed with His Holy Spirit, bought by the blood of Jesus for better things. Today on this podcast, we see in Ephesians 5, Paul's challenge to be true imitators of God as we allow His presence to rule in every area of our lives. Having said that, parents, you may want to preview this episode first. There may be some sections of this episode that contain content and themes that require a certain level of maturity in our listeners. You'll be the best decider in what and how and when and how you want to share these things with your kids on some of these topics, and it may be too early for some of them. But with that caveat, let's jump into Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. When we think of imitators, we often think of something that is inferior, like imitation crab meat, or imitation leather, or imitation handbags or watches, or imitators who are bad Elvis impersonators. Imitation in our minds often equals a cheaper, inferior, lesser version of the original. But the word in the Greek is always used in the New Testament in the positive sense and has the connotation of the verb to become, meaning as we imitate, we become more like the original. 
So there's no worry about being a knockoff version with this imitation, but transforming into the real deal. So while imitators in our mind may not sound that great, in the Greek mind, it was flattery. Greeks held in high regard the art of oratory, being able to speak with wisdom and influence. And when a Greek orator, orator was just starting out, they would imitate one who was a greater orator, one who had the practice down pat. And as you imitated the greater one, you became more like him. And this is what Paul is challenging the Ephesians with in this section of practical Christian living. Now, where are we to look for this imitation? Well, chapter 5 starts out with, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. It's a continuing thought. Paul made no chapter break when he wrote this. And the therefore points back to a few things from the previous chapter, where he said in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And then culminated in verse 32 with, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. This therefore refers back to chapter 4. We are to imitate and therefore become more like him, more like God, in being kind, in being tenderhearted, in forgiveness. These are things that the Lord does perfectly. He is the example. Can you imagine what would the world and the church look like if we imitated him in kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness? He is those things each and every day as our Heavenly Father. And while the natural man will not respond that way in conflict and daily life with other less than perfect fallen people, God does not respond based upon emotion or pride or disappointment or resentment or bitterness. His nature guides his interactions with us even as much as we fall short. And it is his nature in us that Paul says can lead us to imitate him, to learn to yield to the Spirit and choose to be kind when the circumstances don't require it, or tender-hearted when we want to harden our hearts in self-protection or self-preservation, or forgiveness when we are wanting to hold on to resentment. We have a choice to imitate the world in these things or to imitate and thus become more like the Lord. And Paul says, be imitators of God. He explains a bit more in verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walking in love. Christ is our example. And God's way of love is much greater than man's finite attempts and standards of love. And this area is so important. In fact, the most important area we are to strive for an imitation because it is the defining characteristic or should be of those who follow Jesus. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But we need to imitate Christ in this area because we are not very good at loving. The word here for love is the Greek word agape. In Greek, there were more words than one that we have translated to mean love. There was eros love, a sensual, erotic, desiring, passionate love. And there was phileo, a love of familiarity and devotion, friendship, family love. And then there was agape, an unconditional love, one that depended on the giver and did not waver or fluctuate based upon what the recipient did or did not do. 
That's the love, that agape love that we are called to imitate and walk in, because only Christ has truly shown and lived out this kind of love. This love is a sacrificial, giving love. Jesus clearly sacrificed himself on the cross in the end, but this giving, sacrificial love was the way that Jesus loved all the time. And God continues to love us even now in this same way. Notice, Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This love we are to imitate is sacrificial, and the readers would have been familiar with sacrifice. It was a part of their understanding of worship for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, this can challenge us in modern times because when it comes to love especially, we are all about gaining and not giving. We are trained to focus on getting love and not necessarily giving love. But Jesus demonstrated this sacrificial love, giving himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And that love was fully and finally demonstrated on the cross. The just dying for the unjust, because we needed it, not him. But there are, here are some thoughts on sacrificial love that David Guzik mentions in his commentary. He says, we often think we could lay down our life in a dramatic way to show our love for others. But God often calls us to lay down our life little by little, in small coins, as it were, instead of one large payment. But it is laying down our lives nonetheless. That's the challenging thing about loving as Christ loves, isn't it? It's the need to continually love sacrificially. And Paul challenges us to live out our love like Christ did, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In the Jewish worship, there were offerings and there were sacrifices. For example, in Leviticus 2, there was a grain offering made unto the Lord. It was a mix of fine flour with oil and frankincense, and it was an offering to express gratitude to God for the blessings he had given. That's the offering, a giving in worship. And then there was sacrifice, in particular the sin offerings, in which there was a victim given for sin, a sacrificial act in which the blood of an animal was shed in order to make atonement for sin, a giving of one life for another life. And as these offerings and sacrifices were made to God, it was a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. Literally, there was fires at the temple on the altar. As all that meat was grilling at the temple as they burnt many of the sacrifices, it was a big old barbecue smelling so good. And even the grain offering, which was often placed into the fire, think of the smell of something baking in the kitchen. It's desiring and drawing you in. We had a bakery near our house in Europe, and late at night when they were baking the bread, it just made you want to get something fresh out of the oven, which we did do a time or two, knocking on the window late at night for a fresh loaf. Loving and living like Christ should be a part of our worship to God. As I seek to live in a way that pleases Him, it is a sweet aroma to God. And it is a sacrifice of our lives to imitate God in love because it goes against what we would normally do. But as children of God, with his nature in us, we can imitate him in these things and become more like him. And it won't always happen, will it? And it especially won't happen right away. We will not always get loving others right. But as his children, we always have his example and his guidance and his grace in these things, imitating God as dear children. Now, as we mentioned, the world has a very different view of love. 
caught up in the eros of passion love primarily, or the fondness of phileo love. And it's with that in mind that Paul ventures into verses three and four. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The but here is a contrast, a contrast to loving sacrificially, which we just looked at, and loving with Christ as our example. And it is contrasted with fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. The world has always confused love and lust. And in fact, if you listen to our songs and watch our shows and our movies, love has been hijacked by lust and fornication, even robbing the concept and calling it making love. Paul says that for these believers here in Ephesus, but fornication and all uncleanness or, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. This is important for Paul to reiterate in Ephesus and to us as well, because their culture in Ephesus was sex crazed. Sex was part of their DNA. You see, Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis or Diana. She was a goddess of fertility. And she was worshipped there at the temple, which that temple was enormous. In fact, it was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, which that Parthenon was one of the wonders of the world. So you can imagine how great this temple was. The Ephesian temple, it took 220 years to build, ornate, fashioned out of white marble, though it is just ruins today. And there, the temple was devoted to the worship of fertility and pleasure. Artemis was worshipped as she was the deification of fertility, sexual pleasure, and lust, and the city was known for its fertility idols, depictions of Artemis, with a swollen belly of fertility and wrapped around on all parts of her body with multiple breasts hanging everywhere. The worship appealed to the base desire of sex, and it was a hot commodity. Worshippers leaving the temple there in Ephesus would encounter the 1,000 temple prostitutes who waited them, where one could engage in a final act of sensual worship before leaving the temple, by engaging in sex with a temple prostitute, often a young boy or a young girl. Ephesus was known for rampant sexuality. That was the culture. It was going on in your backyard, a central and celebrated and wonderful thing. If they had had TV, they would turn it on and it would be there. If they had had handheld devices, they would have had access to it there. It was available, it was encouraged, and, well, everyone was doing it. And Paul steps in and says, not so among you, believers. This is an area of the culture that these believers could not engage in. In missions and ministry, there are some ways that we should seek to engage the culture, but never at a compromise of the message and the standards God holds for our lives. When Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some, he did not mean by allowing compromise or sin or carnality to creep in, or by engaging in things that are sinful or will bring reproach on the name of Jesus. Now, when Paul says that this should not be named among you, some of these Christians may recently have come to know Christ, which means just weeks or months earlier, they were regulars at the temple. Their activities and friends and weekends, they had been a part of these things. Their kids may have hung out with families who were into that sort of thing. Some of them may have had jobs that were a part of the lucrative industry of making the idols that went along with this. 
As we see in Acts chapter 19, when Demetrius the silversmith started complaining and caused a fuss and a riot that almost got Paul killed because the sales of those idols dropped off so much once the gospel came to town and business at the temple of Diana, it dropped off. How amazing is that? The Christians and their influence led to a drop in business in this area. The gospel impacting and transforming the culture, and it was noticed. But could it be that by the time that Paul's writing this from prison years after the event in Acts 19, that some in the church were making their way back to the temple? Could it be that over time the culture was winning them back over? That the things they once repented of and moved away from, that they had slowly been drawn back into it? where they were dabbling in it from time to time. Paul says, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. The saints were to live up to that title. Saints, it means to be set apart, separate for holy use, for God's use. Paul challenged the Corinthian church, which lived in a similar environment, saying in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? These holy saints were to live as temples of the Holy Spirit, walking there in the streets of Ephesus, honoring God in all areas of their lives. They were to be the defining temples there in Ephesus, living temples, moving around, walking around town, and as such, they could not engage in the old practices. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul wanted to make it clear that old life should not be named among you in the church. And this is something that only the Holy Spirit could do as he came to live within them, living temples filled with God's spirit for God's glory. Now, Paul gets into some details here just to make sure they understand what he is saying. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Each of these words here has a different shade and perspective on this subject. Fornication, he starts with. Fornication. It's a general word. It refers to all sexual activity outside of God's parameters. And that really narrows things down. Biblically, we see that God gave sex for a husband and wife only. In Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And later on in chapter 4, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. God wrote the script for sex. He created our bodies for it, to give and receive pleasure, to bond as one, to reproduce, all of it calibrated masterfully by his design. So he gets to set the parameters for it. So fornication is any and all sexual activity that is not between a married man and woman with each other. It's pretty broad and encompasses a lot. Fornication is prostitution. Fornication is premarital sex, sex before marriage between two people who may even be monogamous and committed. Fornication is extramarital sex. And fornication is also homosexuality, since in God's definition, only a man and woman can marry. 
So no, even if two people really love each other, if they are not married, if it falls outside of the scope of God's design for sex, it is sin. And that marriage has to be a biblically defined marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. But Paul does not stop there. He also says uncleanness. This is not speaking of bathing or hygiene. Something unclean was anything that was not holy. The Jews went through ritual cleansings if they were exposed to things that were not holy, even avoiding becoming unclean at the local market. You think we are germ freaks in these modern COVID times? The Jews avoided becoming unclean at all costs. And Paul brings this into their understanding of sexuality. There are things that are pure and clean in God's eyes and others that are unclean. And God gets to establish those parameters. And the writer of Hebrews summed that up in chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It is unclean if it is not between a consenting husband and wife. What a challenge in a sexually charged society back then and even now. God's goal is purity. When it comes to parameters and sex, unmarried couples may struggle with sexual desire. It's not surprising. And they might push the boundaries, but justify to themselves saying, well, we have not done that or we've not gone all the way, but they've done everything else. Well, everything else falls into the realm of being unclean because as Christians, purity is the goal. We tend to focus on what lines not to cross, thinking, well, at least we have not gone that far, instead of striving for purity and God's best, which in the area of sex, until marriage, is to steer clear of the boundaries. Uncleanness is arousing sexually anyone who is not your spouse. It is physical expression or affection that excites sexual feelings, but without the God-given opportunity to satisfy those desires. And if you put it in that context, it greatly narrows the parameters of what God smiles upon in terms of sexuality. What a foreign concept in that world and in our world today. In the same vein, Paul throws in covetousness. What is that doing in this list? Well, covetousness is desiring something that belongs to someone else. And when it comes to sex, any sexual partner who is not your spouse is someone else's husband or wife even if that is down the road in the future. They are not mine, and God does not see us as one, as he considers when a man and woman are united as husband and wife in the sexual union. And in fact, you are robbing that future husband or wife by using this person for your own sexual gratification now. They are not yours, and your desire is covetousness. And covetousness is a sin indeed. That's why God put it on the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And I would say, be that present spouse or future spouse. And Paul also talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he warned them to abstain from sexual immorality so they would not defraud their brother, taking away something that is their brother's or one day might be. All these things, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. While it is understandable why these things are taking place in the world around us who does not know God and has rejected the authority of God over their lives, when it came to the church and when it comes to the church, there should not even be the slightest indication that this is going on. There is to be no compromise in this area. And what a challenge because the world right outside had no problem with it. 
Now, knowing this, there needs to be room for grace and sanctification in this area. There will be stumbling and falling for sure because the sexual drive and the old nature are very real, and the culture gives plenty to feed these things. But a believer who honors God and a church that honors God will live according to the principles and biblical standards of sexual purity. And tagging on to this, Paul says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, Paul has not jumped topics necessarily right now, but this easily ties into the sexual sin we just discussed. As he mentions these sexual expressions bleeding over into other areas, including speech. How the topic of sex has infiltrated the world's conversations and the world's humor. It's hard to watch any comedian without it turning lewd. Or even the best sitcom writers seem to run out of witty things to write about after a few seasons and need to start throwing in inappropriate sexual humor to get laughs. Paul ends his list, though, by saying instead of those things, there should be giving of thanks. What a random thing to drop in this list, isn't it? Well, not really, because giving of thanks is a sign of a worshipful heart, a heart that acknowledges God's goodness and blessing. And for those who know and follow God's design in the area of sex, there is much to thank God for. Sex is a gift from God, and according to Genesis 2.18, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and he created a woman for Adam, a wife, and the two would become one expressed in the sexual union. And when expressed and experienced in those God-given parameters, we can thank and praise God. God does not shy away from sex or frown upon sex or get embarrassed by sex or he's not prudish about sex. God is very interested in sex. He smiles upon sex and disappointed when man ruins it by hijacking it for his own purposes. But in the context of God's design, there can and should be giving of thanks. Now, in Ephesians 5, 5 through 7, Paul reminds them of the seriousness of this area of sin. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them." Paul repeats his list here, fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, and he adds, who is an idolater. Remember the context. Ephesus, a city full of sexual worship, even profiting off the sale of idols you would take home with you to worship in unclean ways in the privacy of your own home. This sexual understanding was idolatrous, Paul says. Idolatry is worshiping anything created instead of the creator. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to take a little statue home with us as a souvenir. And sex and the human body, they are created things. But they should lead us to worship God as we understand them more fully and should not be the objects of our worship. Those engaged in sexual sin are committing idolatry, worshiping the creation and ignoring the creator who wants to have a say in that area of our lives and of our bodies. And Paul reminds them of a truth that they already know. No fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Compromise in sin can keep you out of the kingdom. It can keep you from heaven. Now, don't misunderstand. The only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. To seek to be justified in my own righteousness and rejecting the provision of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for me. But if I am continuing in sexual sin or any other sin, 
And if I'm not repentant or grieved or moving in a direction of purity, then I must question whether I am truly born again and headed for the kingdom. Now, please, if you are struggling in your sexual sin, do not let the enemy lie and push you further away from Jesus. The fact that you are struggling means that the Spirit is wrestling with you. And you need to press into Jesus and not step away. You need to yield to the Spirit. He wants to set you free to bring you into purity, to redeem your life, all of your life, to help you imitate God in this area as well. But to harden my heart and to decide that this area God will not be given a say and to reject God from this part of our life and our culture and our churches, there's no place in the kingdom of God for such hearts and attitudes. Because in the kingdom, we want Jesus to rule. We want his will and we want his way. And Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There was a deception when it came to sex, in Paul's day as in ours. The deception was, it's no big deal, or God is fine with it, or sin is sin, right? So why make a big deal of this one? Or that's an old way of thinking. These are modern progressive times. Deception. During the early years of the church, the leaders were defending it from false, the false teaching of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that man was body and spirit, and that these two parts were separate. That the spirit was good and that the, that the body was not. And that I could commune with God in the spirit, but in my body, I could do whatever I wanted. Because it was just a physical shell with no tie into my spirit. So Gnosticism, by default, promoted a spirituality that said it honored God, but in actions was living contrary to what pleased God. So many of them were indulging the flesh. And in deception, they justified it. Live how you want. God won't mind. It's just a body. Another deception. I don't believe a loving God will judge you for that. Or love is love, even if you see it differently than I do. Or I know a lot of great people, so it must not really be an issue. That is deception. You have been lied to. And a deception by nature is very, very convincing. It looks so authentic. And this deception, it looks like love. It looks like openness. It looks like caring. But it's not. Deception. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The only future of sin is judgment. God must judge sin because he is a holy God. So don't be deceived. Be wise. Steer wide and clear of sin. All sin. Step back. It's like the yellow caution tape at a crime scene or when there's a hazard. You don't want to cross this line. God's wrath. Just because God does not strike out in anger right now does not mean he is not angry over sin. Just because we can engage in sin and not get hit with lightning in the moment does not mean God is approving. God does not strike out in his wrath over sin because he wants to be merciful and give us time and space to repent. God wants a heart that changes and that leads to a behavioral change. He wants us to live by his blessed and approved standards out of love, not out of duty or begrudging reluctance. But God's wrath will come unless his wrath for our sins, past, present, and future, have been absorbed in the cross of Jesus Christ. The church is not free of sexual sin, but the church has been provided for in sexual sin. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God.
There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus died for sin, including sexual sin. And being set free from the bondage of sin allows us to walk in newness of life, living in ways that please God. We saw today that we are to be imitators of God and walk in love, whether that be in tenderheartedness and forgiveness or in sexual expression that honors God. The words we read today were written to the church of Ephesus, called to walk in love. Years later, John would write to this same church in Revelation 2, and in bringing Jesus' message to them of one of those seven churches, he said, I know your works, Ephesus, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. They were doing everything right in Ephesus. They were standing up for truth and righteousness. They were preaching against false doctrine. They were sharing the gospel in hard and trying times, not growing weary in doing so. But they had left their first love. They were doing all the rest, but the love was missing. And Jesus called this church to repent. We live in a fallen world that needs Jesus. And as much as we as a church need to toe the line in righteousness and sin and sexual immorality, we are called to be filled with his love in doing so. Jesus called that church to repent so that they could continue effectively doing all the things that they were doing, but now out of of a place of love. God wants love to be at the center of all that we do, whether that be in our obedience to his standards or our message and witness to the world. Let it all be done out of love. So, Lord, we ask that you would baptize us afresh in your Holy Spirit, that you would burn away and purify the sin that is in our lives, that you would empower us to live by your holy standards, that you would fill us with a renewed love for you and your truth and for the lost too, Lord, and that you would lead us in ways that bring glory to your name. May we be led by your Spirit, In all that we practice, all that we do, and all that we say, we present ourselves as living sacrifices. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.